Hey, this is the Tangled Podcast. I'm Julian DiLorenzo. Tangled is a show about sustainability, exploring business models and mental models. I'm curious how we can take ideas from nature to try to improve the way we use resources and interact with the world. From the food system to the built environment and global energy production, I'd like to learn from people who are building better ways of doing things. Today, I'm speaking to Nadina Gale. Nadina is a consultant at Metabolic, meaning she's a colleague of Thomas Mason, who I spoke to last episode. If you've listened to that show, you'll know that Metabolic is a consulting and venture building firm that helps companies, communities, and cities to move towards a more sustainable and circular economy. Nadina is also one of the academic directors of a summer school course at the University of Amsterdam called The Circular City. The program explores the urban metabolism, meaning the flows of energy and materials coming into and going out of cities. I recently took part in the first edition of the course, which involved lectures and field trips around Amsterdam and other parts of the Netherlands, hearing from people who are designing new and interesting ways of managing resources. On top of her other work, Nadina is somehow also managing to pursue a PhD. Her research is in a new field called ecological engineering, which she'll explain during our conversation. We also talk about what a circular economy really means, why we need to redesign cities to take natural ecosystem processes into account, and what Rubik's Cubes can teach us about problem solving. If you'd like more information about anything we talk about, show notes with links are at tangledpodcast.com. And if you enjoy listening, please subscribe to Tangled in whichever podcast player you use. Here's my conversation with Nadina Gale. The phrase circular economy can be misleading, I think, sometimes, or, or maybe not exactly clear. Um, there seem to be a few different definitions that I've heard. Um, and I've heard you say that it should be a circular economy should be a means to an end, not an end in itself. Um, I'll just read the definition that I think Metabolic is currently using. Um, so the circular economy is a new economic model for addressing human needs and fairly distributing resources without undermining the functioning of the biosphere or crossing any planetary boundaries. Can, can you just go through that a little bit and, and talk about what, for, for you and for Metabolic, what, it, what a circular economy actually means? Yeah, I think when we talk about the planetary boundaries concept, that is the biggest inspiration for us. So that's something that came out in 2009 by Johan Rockström from the Stockholm Resilience Center. And that was the first time that a number of scientists and economists came together to basically quantify these nine basic parameters on which life on Earth functions. So things like um, the amount of phosphorus and nitrogen on Earth, uh, the amount of biodiversity that we have, the amount of genetic biodiversity that we have, the, how much our land use is being changed, all these basic parameters. And what they uh, were able to do is actually quantify how much have we exceeded basically what they've defined as the safe operating space for humanity. And that to us was the first time that you had kind of this quantitative framework to start looking at what, uh, how humanity should really function. But more importantly, what is an economic model that uh, can ensure that we can, you know, live in a fair and just society where uh, basic resources are accessible to all, um, but at the same time not exceed these planetary boundaries. So what we mean by a circular economy not being um, um, being the means to an end is that uh, it's all about having 
a framework that you can design better systems that are regenerative and waste-free to basically come to that safe operating space and certain parameters that may have exceeded that, uh, bring those back down so that we can all function in a just way in that area. How do you think about trade-offs when there's maybe an intervention you're considering that might be really great in one area, but then actually might cause another type of harm in another area? Yeah, so um, the the principles of systems thinking, which basically what you're describing is burden shifting, is incredibly important to our work. Um, one of the best ways that I like to describe it is using uh, the Rubik's Cube as an example. If you know that you have to get the blue square on the other side of the cube in order to fix the puzzle, to do that, you're going to uh, move around so many other colored squares um, to finally get that one blue square on the right side. But of course, while you've done that, you've changed around all these other different colored squares. Uh, to cause basically, um, in a nice metaphor, all these other consequences in other parts of the system. So when it comes to uh, deciding on these trade-offs, um, what we try to do is think of, you know, where can it have uh, its m- the most impact? So the idea is always to use this um, a decision-making uh, hierarchy, and the idea that first and foremost, what you want to want to do is avoid impact altogether. So reducing your material use. So it, you know, it doesn't even matter if your um, if your material use is is metal, wood, or something else. Um, as long as you can reduce the amount of material that you're using, you're already um, reducing the impact. Then the secondly is looking at um, supply. So where exactly are sorry? The second you're looking at is synergy. So how can you look at these different uh, different material flows and actually reuse them in the same uh, in the same system. Um, and then you're looking at supply, which is basically sourcing the material in, in a better place uh, or from a better source. And then you have manage, which is looking at uh, being able to close all these different information loops. You can basically, with every reiteration of the design or of the system, it gets better and better. Um, but basically, that's a lot of abstract talk for um, making sure that you're lining up all the different consequences and benefits that things can have and basically just doing a SWOT analysis to see what the best uh, option might be in that certain situation. Yeah, I think specifically in the built environment, a lot of the circular economy ideas just make, make intuitive sense, like reuse materials from, from an old building instead of throwing them away. Um, but I think sometimes in the current system, it can be difficult to actually make things work. Like the example of tax incentives, there might be a high tax on labor. So repurposing materials can end up being actually just more expensive than using new materials. Have have you come across people uh, using creative methods of, of sort of getting around that or ideas or projects that you think can uh, be inspiring? Absolutely. I mean, uh, one of the projects that I really like a lot is a project called uh, Iconica um, that are from the south of the Netherlands. And basically what they've done is, is they're able to take recycled plastic um, or used plastic and be able to recycle it and turn it into pure PET plastic, uh, pure meaning that uh, that it's a transparent or white in color um, that you can basically reuse it for any purpose that you might have. And they're strategy and their technology that they're doing to do that now can basically do that 
at cost to what virgin plastic costs. And that's one of the really big issues, like you mentioned, with the labor cost being so high, is a lot of the time when you want to use recycled materials, whether or not that's incentivized or whether you have uh, an intrinsic motivation to do that, it's simply just too expensive and it doesn't make sense. And when you have new technologies coming out like this, where it actually makes financial uh, financial sense, then that kind of changes the whole ballgame. The, the course you have just created and I took part in was all about cities um, and, and how the circular economy can, can relate uh, to them. Why are cities a good or interesting point to, to look at the circular economy? I think when you look at the circular economy on a global scale, it's incredibly daunting um, and that cities can become these very interesting nodes within the system where you can have uh, for little um, for little input, you can have a whole lot of impact. And the reason for that is because we define cities as leverage points. So again, going back to these principles of systems thinking, a city... Um, the cities on Earth only cover about 3% of the uh, of the Earth's land surface, but they are the economic engines and the production engines of the world, also responsible both directly and indirectly for up to 75% uh, to all of greenhouse gas emissions. So the idea is when you can have, you know, make little local steps, it can mean a lot in terms of global, global circular economy progress. When you're preaching to the choir, you... You know, you, d- you don't struggle to convince some people that it's important to change the way things are done. Um, but obviously, lots of people or companies or governments are slower to to move or to act. Um, wh- what have you found can, can help convince people um, of the benefits of doing things differently? I think most cities today have some kind of sustainability or green um, agenda, whether or not that's focused on the energy transition, which is which it is a lot of the time, uh, or you know creating new jobs, for example, and economic growth. Most cities already have these agendas, so it's a matter of kind of layering in sustainability on a lot of these things. Um, one of the ways that I think citizens often feel quite frustrated is even if a city has a sustainability agenda and they feel like it's not um, being executed, is to actually start looking at much more of a local level and basically translating citywide goals onto a local level. And I think that narrative is really quite strong because then on the one hand, the cities feel like they're actually making input, uh, impact in these different areas. And on the other hand, the local your local neighbors are able to see it and also get engaged. Um, and I think that's kind of what, uh, what softens a lot of the frustration that might otherwise be felt. And when it comes to um, convincing, you know, people to even add in that sustainability layer, I think one of the most important things that you could look at is is the business case for it. You know, the the Netherlands has on its national agenda that they want to reduce uh, the raw material use by half in 2030, and they want to have a, achieve a complete circular economy by 2050. Now, when you have those things on the national agenda, no matter if you're a small business or a huge uh, corporation, these things are hovering over you. So it's in your interest to start early and to start now in looking at how that might translate uh, to you know, possible economic savings through means of, for example, industrial symbiosis, where you could perhaps use the waste product of another company as the source feed for your products, for example. Um, 
and all these different kinds of uh, business cases and business models that are coming out right now might prove to actually be very effective in not only integrating sustainability on um, an intrinsic level, but also just a financial one. Can you tell me what nature-based solutions are? Nature-based solutions uh, is basically the European Commission uh, reframing what we know as green infrastructure or uh, ecosystem-based management or ecological engineering uh, or nature-based design. Um, Nature-based solutions in the broadest sense of the word um, essentially mean uh, looking to being inspired by or even including nature as a way to... um, both solve uh, societal and economical uh, problems. And you can have this, uh, most of the time, the test case for this is a city, but you can also look at nature-based solutions in terms of agricultural problems that you may have as well. And you're currently pursuing a PhD in that area. Mm -hmm. Can can you tell me a little bit about your research? Yeah, so I'm doing a PhD in uh, in ecological engineering, which is um, a... A rapidly developing new fields, which basically takes principles from engineering and ecology, as you can imagine by the name. And the idea here is to basically predict, design, and restore and build new ecosystems uh, or restore existing ecosystems that uh, benefit both nature uh, and people. And my research specifically within that is looking at how we can use new and exciting data sets uh, to basically inform uh, better urban greenery and design. Uh, So an example of that is uh, we're currently doing research using high-resolution satellite imagery to basically uh, better predict the ecological quality of urban green space and also looking at um, interesting data sets and working with different machine learning algorithms uh, to to use, for example, TripAdvisor reviews or Google reviews or uh, geotagged Twitter data, for example. And all of these different data sets can tell us something about how people are perceiving the quality of the urban green space and how we might work to improve it. Yeah, machine learning seems to, what, what it's capable of now is so different to what it was capable of, say, 10 years ago. Yeah, and I think the other interesting thing is that, you know, the majority of us with our smartphones and with what we're even, you know, voluntarily putting out in the world, as in tweets and reviews and um, putting out our sentiments and opinions, um, you know, that's also relatively new. If you just look at the massive growth of, of social media networks of every type in the last uh, decade, um, those have become incredibly valuable um, data sources. I mean, if you look at, you know, 10 years ago, if you wanted to know what people thought about a park or or how you could perhaps improve an urban green space or a nature-based solution, however you want to define it, you know, you would have to go out into that park, you would have to do a survey, and, you know, you automatically have a bias there, right? Because you're only talking to people that are presently in that park. So, you know, more times than not, there are people that are actually enjoying that space, or else why would you be in it? Whereas, um, these more uh, broader uh, data sets are basically allowing us to mine unsolicited opinions uh, from people. And that stuff is is really, really effective because uh, they're answers to questions that we didn't know how to ask 10 years ago, and they're, um, they're, they're rapidly increasing the accuracy that we can get about what people truly think about these spaces. I've heard you use the phrase ivy on a concrete wall. Can you... 
<laughs> explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I think um, especially since uh, nature-based solutions, uh, the term and the concept burst out onto the scene, let's say, you know, not even five years ago. Um, and that was kind of brought about by the European Commission uh, with their funding, uh, as well as IUCN. Uh, they were both front runners in starting to use this term. I think how a lot of people have started to interpret this uh, term is as long as it's green, it's good. And uh, that is problematic on a number of levels um, because one, you know, um, being green for a lot of different climates, uh, you know, in a lot of our Western cities, being green is indeed good. But for a lot of um, other countries, if you look at across, you know, the Southern Hemisphere, being green does not necessarily mean good. Actually, being green is maybe a sign that uh, there is too much water being used for irrigation in an area where, you know, there might be a water sorted. So this, you know, green equals good um, is problematic in its own sense. But also um, there's the example of the city tree. And the city tree came from a startup in Germany, which basically uh, created these moss-covered uh, walls that included benches. And these um, moss-covered wall um, installations uh, claim to have the same filtering power as 275 trees. But the problem with that is that they're basically these mono-functional nature-based solutions, right? Because all that they're offering is the air filtration. Whereas if you actually implemented um, 275 trees uh, in a city, the amount of, you know, multifunctional benefits you would get from that, you know, everything from reducing climb to increased public health to decreased stress levels to water filtration, um, all of these different, uh, you know, and the list goes on and on, all of these different functions are so much more important than just having um, one of these, you know, monofunctional nature-based solutions. And above all that, um, in some calculations, one city tree uh, is actually more expensive than actually planting 275 real trees. How do you see the relationship between top-down stuff like legislation and, and bottom-up small movements of uh, communities? You know, sometimes there'll be a small community who are, who are really engaged and really want to do something um, and they, they might start a small project, but then in terms of overall impact at, at, a, at a large scale, it, it may not actually be doing anything. I think the biggest thing with that is that what you what you can't measure, you don't really know. So I think there are a lot of really exciting initiatives, especially in Amsterdam, if you look at, for example, Wasted, which collects uh, plastic waste in Amsterdam North and... Um, repurposes that and or remelts it down to uh, create basically, you know, public benches and things of this nature. Um, there's a lot of initiatives that focus on rescuing food waste that might otherwise be thrown out and making this into new meals. And these initiatives seem really great and are, um, except it's difficult to know, you know, where exactly what their impact might be. Um, and a lot of the time people can make different assumptions about this, but until we actually go in and, you know, do a very detailed material flow analysis, for example, and look at all these different flows, can we then actually see, okay, this is the amount of food being wasted in Amsterdam, and this is the proportion that these different um, initiatives are able to rescue. And without numbers like that, I think it's very difficult to translate that into policy that might actually stimulate and incentivize these kinds of initiatives. Are there any specific people or books that have shaped the way you personally think about sustainability? Yeah. Um, 
Definitely. I think I grew up in in Canada, in southwestern Ontario, in uh, what started out, um, you know, as a house in, you know, close, very close to the countryside and what basically expanded into full-fledged suburbia. And I think even as a, as a kid and as a young teenager growing up in that environment, I always, you know, thought it was so weird that, you know, even though the grocery store was just two kilometers away, there was no sidewalk to get there. You know, it was completely car-centric and car-oriented. And growing up in Canada with Dutch parents, you know, be, the school, for example, also only being two and a half kilometers away, they expected me, of course, to bike there, you know, and I did. I mean, it's not like I had much choice. But at the same time, you know, you're basically biking either on the sidewalk, if there is one, which you're not allowed to bike on, or you're biking, you know, with cars going, you know, 50, 60 kilometers an hour. So these different kinds of questions and just these, you know, especially then going back to visit the Netherlands and visit my family there and just seeing, you know, how how different the urban design was in those areas. I always just kind of questioned the, I mean, not so much sustainability because I wasn't really aware of that term, but, but definitely just the effectiveness of setting up your city like that. Um, and then I was, I think I was 14 when I came across the documentary, The End of Suburbia, which uh, was made by James Howard Kunstler, which had, he had also written um, the really popular book called The Geography of Nowhere, which I ended up reading after the documentary. And that really kind of legitimized all these questions that I had and made me realize, you know, I was not the only one that thought this way and that there was a whole group um, of people who uh, were also questioning the same ways and questioning why suburbia was set up the way it was. Um, and then a couple years later, my dad got me into Jane Jacobs and reading her works um, further, you know, uh, further really helped me realize that this was really the direction that I wanted to go in, um, seeing how cities were set up in an unsustainable way, and also knowing that they could be these leverage points and these nodes to helping the entire world become a whole lot more sustainable. To change tack just a little bit, you've also done a lot of work with festivals, I know, um, which maybe don't seem like the first place you would think about when you're thinking about sustainability or the circular economy. Why, why are they a useful um, area to look at? We've been talking a lot about cities and how cities are such interesting leverage points uh, towards transitioning towards a circular economy. And uh, the same thing is with festivals. Festivals are essentially temporary mini cities. They share a lot of the same challenges, both ecological in terms of resources, in terms of waste, in terms of uh, building and construction, except it's just um, a lot more saturated within a number of days, you know, because you're building a festival to last um, for a week tops. Um, but a lot of the time, the amount of people that comes to these things can even exceed uh, the number of people that are living in that city that it's hosted in. If you look at, for example, some of the smallest festivals, you know, welcoming thousands, tens of thousands, and you have even uh, festivals that are um, that are hosting hundreds of thousands of people. Now, these lead to some really interesting questions, right? Because there are these um, incredible testing beds for 
circular economic applications. If you look at some of the um, the waste challenges, especially that festivals have, you know, how can you basically design a, a festival to be waste free? What does that look like? And a lot of the time, uh, because they're so temporary in nature, and because they work um, uh, basically as their own organisms, a lot of the time they don't have, uh, you know, year long, uh, decade long lock in contracts that a lot of cities have, they're able to change partnerships almost every year and be able to experiment with all these new things. And I think that's what leads to some very interesting lessons that cities can use as well. Since you've started uh, working in this area, is there anything that you've changed your mind about? Oh, that's a good question. Can I think about that one for a second? Yeah, you may. (laughs) (laughs) Um, is Is there anything else that you think you would you would like to discuss specifically that that we haven't that we haven't brought up so far i think one of the main things that's missing from the circular economy and specifically the circular city conversation is the lack of talk about you know natural capital and green infrastructure and ecological engineering within circular cities a lot of the time the conversation around circular cities is focused on uh you know closing the loop uh, first analyzing and looking at, you know, what are the different material flows that are coming into this, uh, into the city and out of the city. And this can be expanded also to include, you know, uh, human capital flows and information flows. So in that sense, you know, it's become quite holistic. Um, but at the same time, uh, I feel like a lot of the problems that, uh, circular cities are facing in terms of their ac- application are essentially urban ecology problems. You know, most cities, uh, that exist today have been built in uh, in a way that has a total disregard for the natural ecosystem that it was built on. And if you can start uh, applying that layer and looking at how from there you can use natural capital as a starting point to from there close these different uh, you know, nutrient, material, waste, uh, energy cycles, then that becomes um, not only a waste-free city, but a truly regenerative one. Yeah, I think that's so interesting, especially um, cities that have been where they are for so long it's uh the the landscape is so different to what it would be inverted commas naturally or or before humans um so when you're when you're you're planning sort of ecological interventions what do you use as a starting point as as like a an idea of what should actually be there Well, there's a great TV show that did that. I can't remember the name exactly, but something like 100 days after all humans died or something like that. And it shows like, for example, uh, New York completely flooded because it has to pump out, you know, uh, millions of liters of water out of its subway system every year. And then you see plants slowly taking over buildings. But what it also shows is how so many materials um continue to exist, you know, even, you know, a thousand years, if you look at, you know, certain plastic materials and things of that nature. But I mean, that's, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, I think, uh, from the beginning of the spectrum, you know, whether it's a new build, or you're retrofitting a certain area, it's just doing an analysis of all the natural features, you know, what, what do the weather patterns look like? You know, what, what does that, what will that look like in the future? Is this an area that it's expected to deal with more drought? Is it an area that's expected to have, you know, short and heavy rainfalls? Um, is it an area that's built on a swamp? What kind of soil has it been built on? You know, clay soil 
soils versus volcanic soils can have much different properties. Um, is it built near any um, potential for natural disasters, you know, hurricanes, um, volcanic eruptions, tsunamis, all these different factors? I think we as humans tend to feel that we're invincible, but as we've seen, especially, you know, the last year in 2017 with the enormous amount of natural disasters that we saw in that year, but even, you know, 2018 uh, being um, one of, if not the hottest year on earth, and especially seeing that in your local context, like Amsterdam, where we now have the driest summer that's ever been recorded uh, since they started recording in 1901. I mean, those are incredible challenges. And that is, you know, Mother Nature saying, you know, no matter what steel and concrete houses that you guys are building, uh, I'm still here. And I have a huge impact on um, on how you guys live. So the more that you can do that in sync with the natural ecosystem, the better, in my opinion. This sort of stuff seems to rely a lot on interdisciplinary thinking like there there's so much to to going into it and so many specializations and i sort of think like a lot of the problems we have now might in part be sort of due to this like hyper specialization where people get really good at one specific thing but then they only focus on that one specific thing without any real understanding or awareness of um everything else that is interconnected with it so you know buildings that are really well designed but they just don't take into account any of the the natural sunlight or the the way water flows um just as an example i suppose what i'm thinking but yeah do you do you struggle to or how how do you sort of um bring bring different specialties and different expertises all together i think in in the work that we do uh, at Metabolic, it's an inherently very uh, interdisciplinary team, but also in terms of just my PhD topic. I mean, that in itself is already bringing uh, two fields together, ecology and engineering, that, you know, uh, that didn't really start until the 70s where people kind of started thinking like, okay, we are building our cities, you know, with total disregard for nature. What does that mean? And that's kind of, you know, after years of those, that kind of infrastructure being put in place, you kind of see what kind of a negative um, impact that can have. But at the same way, you know, those are very, very difficult barriers to break down, you know, because if we think about you know, we have gray infrastructure, which is the norm. Uh, the idea, you know, that you bring in concrete first and then, you know, maybe put some greenery over top versus the idea of green infrastructure where greenery plays the central role and that you might, you know, add in structural support with certain gray elements. The problem is, is that, you know, we have hundreds of years of knowledge and safety regulations and building codes and all these um, important parameters that result in the way our cities uh, are built today. Now, with kind of the rise of green infrastructure, even though the idea of it has been around since the 1970s, it's not really until recently that um, the business models and uh, the building codes and safety regulations are finally kind of catching up. And the problem with that is, I mean, with gray infrastructure, you're dealing with concrete. That is a very reliable material. You know how that material is going to be today and how it's going to be 50 years from now. Whereas with green infrastructure, it's a, you're dealing with a living organism. So you have no idea how that might react to certain pressures and how it might ensure that people are kept safe and otherwise. So these are just some really difficult practical questions that are kind of hindering a lot of the implementation today. And I think the only way to kind of get our 
around that uh, and to basically build bridges across those barriers is indeed, as cliche as it sounds, bring together all these different disciplines to put their heads together and think of uh, new ways to solve it, but also make sure that you have the room for experimentation within cities to actually prove to prove that these concepts can work. I'll quickly come back to the change of mind question, but don't feel pressured to answer it. I just... <laughs> I think one thing that I've changed my mind about is how easy it is. I have this a lot of the time with festivals and it kind of comes in uh, to, again, the importance of interdisciplinary work that as much as we see about it in the media, about climate change and the idea that um, that sustainability is so important that it's still quite difficult to, um, to basically change people's minds. And I think that the reason for that is that we've done the world a huge disservice by putting so much focus on climate change and things like the Paris Accord and focusing on, you know, that we need to reduce the the temperature, um, you know, on Earth and make sure that we don't exceed, you know, the two, de- two degrees Celsius of warming and these different things. I think that does a complete disservice to to most people. And the reason for that is because, you know, even for me, someone who works Uh, you know, is getting a PhD in this stuff, is working as a sustainability consultant, that is way too abstract to even think about. And I think one of the the best things that you can do is engage local citizens in their local neighborhoods to, for example, work on their consumption behavior. You know, that's one of the ways that an individual person can have the most impact on the environment. You know, what is it that you're buying? You know, how are you voting with your dollars, if you will? You know, how um, how how are you living? How can you make sure that you are reducing and, and treading lightly, uh, treading as lightly on the earth as possible? Um, perhaps, you know, that goes into something as tangible as, as greening your neighborhood and planting trees and in that way doing your part to sequester carbon. I think these things are a lot more effective and not only make people feel like they're doing their part, but you know, all these little actions do really build up to something great. And I think we can get a lot more done that way rather than just focusing on climate change. That might be a really nice place to wrap up. Um, Can you tell people where they can find you online? Yeah, I have a, a website, which is www.nadinagalli.com, N-A-D-I-N-E-G-A-L-L-E.com. You can also find me at, on Twitter at Earth2Nadina, and um, the Metabolics website is www.metabolic.nl. Nadine, thank you so much. Thank you, Julian. Okay, thanks for listening. You can find show notes with links to all the people, projects, and books that were mentioned in the conversation by going to tangledpodcast.com. If you have feedback, let me know on Twitter. I'm at Julio underscore. That's H-O-O-L-I-O underscore. If you liked the show, please share it and subscribe to Tangled in whichever podcast app you use. You could also rate the show in iTunes, which would be a huge help. And finally, you can sign up to my email newsletter. I'll let you know when new podcast episodes are released, and I'll send you a monthly list of good books, articles, and other podcasts to read and listen to. You can sign up at tangledpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening. I'll speak to you next time.